Hi, I'm Adam Beaumont, founder and director of With Purpose Consulting. Come to you from Melbourne. I'm a strategist, facilitator and regulatory consultant who works with executives, leadership teams and boards to be more effective, more successful and achieve better outcomes for them and their organisations. I want to welcome you to my podcast where we have insightful discussions with prominent experts in the area of strategy, leadership, operation and tactical planning and regulation. I've heard people say that to be an entrepreneur, you must be innovative and original, but I'm not sure that's always true. A different view of an entrepreneur is someone who can make things happen, someone who can take innovative ideas, make them real and create value for their customers or their stakeholders. Um, Thomas Edison is quoted as saying that successful innovation is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. I think successful entrepreneurs persist. They see challenges as part of the journey. They adapt and they're agile. They solve problems as they go and they have an unwavering view of their vision and what they want to achieve. In this podcast, we want to explore entrepreneurship as the process of innovating and implementing. We want to unpack if innovation can exist without implementation. To help us in this discussion, I'm joined by Andrew Morgan, dubbed the innovator in 2019 for his work on reclaiming precious timbers from forests submerged in Tasmania's hydroelectric dams. Andrew's the co-founder of Hydrowood a board member of Private Forest Tasmania and the managing director of SFM Environmental Solutions. He's well known as an innovator, entrepreneur and strategic thinker, and he's well placed to talk about how you turn ideas into reality. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to chat to me. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. So what makes an entrepreneur? Mm, It's a good question. Um, uh, look, I, I think someone who's an entrepreneur is able to pick up an idea and and really really run with it. And I think your, your intro sums it up to to not take no for an answer and to keep pushing and you, you know have you you'll come up against barriers and work out ways around those barriers and ignore the the naysayers. Um, my my business partner hates the fact that I was called the innovator because it was actually his <laughs> idea. Uh, so I've just stolen it, and then I get all the glory. But uh, yeah, when when we, we literally came up with the idea of Hydrowood um, in a pub, like we were having a beer, and he, he said, um, "Yeah, we should do this." So I've been you've just been to British Columbia and seen the harvesting, um, the, the reclaiming of the logs from underwater there that they've been doing for a long time. And the first thing I said is, "No, you're bloody mad!" Like I was actually saying, "No, you can't do this." Um, but it was then that sort of left this seed of an idea that. We went off to Google and you know went and had a look around and went oh no this actually could be a thing and it there was this seed of a concept that sort of slowly grew but all the way through almost until or, and even to this day we've had people saying you can't do that the wood won't be um, sound you won't get the funding you won't be able to sell it for the price point you want you won't be able to build the technology for it all the way through when they say it's. And you need to just be able to keep pushing through that and say, get stuffed, we think this is real, and, and keep pushing. There's an absolute persistence. And I think if you look back through time and look at entrepreneurs and, and what they've done, a lot of them were considered eccentric. A lot of them were considered pretty mad, and yet they persisted with their ideas and everyone looks back on them now and goes, oh, that's actually a really good idea. Didn't think so at the time. It was a bit of a nutter. But now they actually look back and say these people were quite, you know, quite... Uh, ahead of their time um 
I'm not sure, sure we'll look, be looked back in, in history and say, oh, they were, they were nutters. But I think it's, um, yeah, it's it's certainly about uh, having persistence and and having a belief in it. I think that's the other thing is if you don't have a belief in something, um, there's no point pushing it. And I think people pick up on that vibe. If you believe something so strongly and you know you've done the work, I think people pick up on the the your body language, your passion. I think that's something yeah. that needs to be had. You need to have passion for it to be able to, to drive it home. And I think people do grasp the the vibe that you know, the, the aura that you put off when you're telling people about these these ideas. So that so the entrepreneur and it for you is that unwavering, have a vision, stand by it, people see that passion persist. But, but do you have to be innovative to be an entrepreneur? Like you were saying that your partner came up with the idea and you were the naysayer. Like are all entrepreneurs innovative or are they just persistent? I don't think all entrepreneurs are innovative because I think sometimes the entrepreneur is the person that picks up an innovative idea that someone else has had and, and implements it. Um, and in the reverse, I suppose, you could ask the question, can, can a innovator be entrepreneurial? Which they can be, so you could get a perfect match. But I think they actually stand up; they do stand apart from one another. Um, I, I think there's people who have had innovations who haven't ever seen them come to reality because yeah. they haven't had the entrepreneurial spirit. They haven't known how to hit the right avenues. They haven't been able to get funding. They haven't. They haven't been able to persist. So, in the relationship you've got with your business partner. Is he the innovator and you're the entrepreneur, the doer? Um, oh, we've got it. We, yeah, we've got it. Uh, it switches around at times. So he will be the one sometimes who prompts me to push, and then I can be the other way around, and I'll be the persistent one. It's it's a um, it's almost like uh, it sounds a bit. We're quite brotherly in the way we do business. We take the piss out of each other. We we push each other when we need to. Um, yeah, and and begrudgingly we'll give each other a compliment if it's required, but it's not <laughs> very common. Um, and so it does. That role does tend to change. Um, so sometimes I'll be the one who's doing the the perspiration as opposed to the inspiration, and yeah. other times it's the other way around. Um, and that's not just for Hydrowood. That's sort of all the way through our, our broader business in terms of forest management and having those ideas and popping up into your head and saying, "Oh, what about?" Why don't we do it this way? And go, oh, that's a good idea. Let's let's try that, and then and pushing it and and seeing where it goes. So inferred in that is that innovation is solving problems or fixing it, or as you say, like what does innovation mean to you? What is innovation? I, I, I suppose it's to come up with a you know something that's new or novel, but then implementing it, and not necessarily in a commercial manner. I mean, I, I think about it in commercial terms because that's just the way I've been you know, brought up and, and how I think, but. There's innovations that could be as simple as the, you know, the, the clothes line, you know, the Hills Hoist was a great innovation um, or the lawnmower. I think it's a really difficult thing to really put a, a clear definition around in terms of what is an innovation because I think they can be as, as small as a thought process. Mm. So you could have an idea but also you could all look, all go all the way up to uh, actual physical items that are helping humanity do things easier but mow the lawn or <laughs> microwave, microwave yeah. a dinner. Make the perfect martini. So, yeah. so you you were dubbed the innovator around your work on Hydrowood. For those that 
who've never heard of Hydrowood. Tell us that story. What, what is Hydrowood? Why is it innovative? Okay, so um, Hydrowood as you know, was a concept that that we came up with in a pub one day. So basically, um, in Tasmania, um, there's a number of lakes that were created through the 50s, 60s, and 70s for hydroelectricity. Um, and in making, building those dams, you know, dam walls go in, and a lot of trees were uh, those those valleys, those river valleys were inundated. And what we've got in Lake Pyman, which is where we're operating now, is a deeply incised valley, um, big big forest. So think old growth, um, old growth eucalyptus and rainforest. So a lot of species that are, are you know, now sort of tending to not be harvested uh, and getting harder to find. And this was built in the late 70s and they put a dam in one end, the lake levels came up and effectively got an underwater forest. So the, the, the water levels rise um, and that forest sat there for 30 years and um, everyone looked at it and it, the trees died. Um, and everyone would look at those dying stumps you could see um, coming out of the water and just assume that, that those logs, those trees underneath were of no value, they'd rotted, no good to anyone. And so the, the, the I guess the, the seed of the idea was seeing what was going on in British Columbia in, the, in, in those rivers over there, historically they've used the river systems as transportation methods and mm -hmm. so they would move rafts of trees down the rivers and some of the trees would, would sink to the bottom, they were known as sinkers, and they would sit there uh, and sit in the, in the mud. And over the past 10 years, 15 years, maybe, maybe longer, there's been quite a movement around extracting the, that timber and um, utilising it and telling a story about it. It's, it's reclaimed. It's got a level of sustainability whilst you're not replacing trees. It's, it's why you're using that tree. You're not using something that's been harvested. And the, 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 the basic concept is once they've gone into the water, it's dark, it's cold and it's anaerobic and they don't break down. So the trees themselves are actually fine. So that was the broad concept of what um, Dave came up with and, and, and I did over, over a beer. And so we went, oh, we should have a look at this. So we actually went to the government to get permission to do a feasibility study. So we went and worked with um, the government in Hydro Tasmania, which is the um, government business enterprise here in Tasmania that manages the dams. Oh, and were they encouraging or were they like, no, no, you're mad? No, no, they were, you could just like, uh, could, yeah, you could see them as we, when we first pitched the idea to, that uh, it was sort of like you'd, you'd finish your meeting, but, you know, be half an hour slot with the with the minister or a relevant uh, bureaucrat and they'd be like, yes, well, you know, thanks for your time. Out, out we'll door, think you. about <laughs> it. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were like, those guys are mad. Right? So, yeah. so, I mean, and this is where that persistence came in. And... Uh, I guess I really cut my teeth on this in terms of learning how to not, not lobby, but certainly politic and find champions. And I, I mean, I describe getting a project like this up sort of like picking a lock. You've got to get all the tumblers in, in mm. lined up to, to, to turn it on. And we needed to have, needed to get to that corridor conversation piece. So you having bureaucrats and politicians speaking to one another about this project in the corridors, not necessarily in the meeting rooms, but going, oh, have you heard about this? This just sounds really interesting. Um, and it was a really good time. Timing for us was great because uh, it was at the time when there was a lot of focus on uh, the Tasmanian Forest Peace Deal, restrictions of supply around those specialty species, 
and so there was a, a there was a level of interest uh, eventually from a few champions that helped us sort of continue to step through. So we then got to a feasibility stage, um, and we engaged the university. So you know the unis was there to help us go through the process of testing the logs. Um, so we went and we put it, uh, some divers in the water and actually went down and pulled some trees, harvested some trees and pulled them out mm. and got them tested. And at that stage, the all these sort of things took a while to do. Like you can't just pull a tree out and make something with it. You've got to cut it into boards or veneer and then dry it. It, so that was a six to nine month process, and then test it, build things with it, and see how it performs. So and, performance of timber is really important. And was there a equivalent like in North America where they were, you know, using the river system as a transport mechanism, and you had the ones the sinkers? What, had they done this before? There was there a template where you go, oh yeah, well they're taking them from underwater as well. Or yeah, there's there's a company over in British Columbia called Triton, um, and we we tried to engage with them quite early, um, and they were pretty guarded about what sort of information they wanted to hand out, which is fair enough. It was their IP. Um, but we saw the systems they were building, which were, were mechanised platforms, so barge platform with a with a harvesting barge on it. And there were a number of others, and they were interesting, particularly out of the States. There were two or three other groups uh, all trying to come up with the technology to do this harvesting. They all had slightly different methods, but they were all tending to be um, uh, companies just trying to write, basically do IPOs and, and mm. raise raise capital um, and I don't think any of them with the exception of Triton have actually come through to the other side. Um, Triton still operate, they, they're operating in Panama and British Columbia um, in a slightly different model. They tend to just contract the harvesting but don't actually brand their product and sell it all the way through to the market which is which is where we ended up. Yeah. Um, so we got to the feasibility stage. Um, timber came out and the timber was fine. It was sound. It um performed as you would expect timber to perform and so we'd really leapfrog to that next stage of development saying right well we've we know the timber's there we've done a large resource assessment of five lakes that we identified in Tasmania um, that we thought were the, the, the low-hanging fruit and we picked Pyman um, because it was west coast reasonably high, heavily modified you've got lots of mining so therefore machinery capabilities over there um, and then the next step was really to find funding and build a machine. So no one had actually, you know, no one had given us, oh, there you go, there's a um, harvesting machine or a barge. We had to come up with that concept. And okay. so that was where, and at the same, the same t- time, that was when um, the Tasmanian Forest Agreement was being signed off and there was a large, I think it was about $120 million worth of federal money was coming into the state to do offset projects and to be honest, most of that money didn't go to forestry. It went to other projects, um, aquaculture, um, schools, um, sports grounds. And there, were, there was a you know, few, few forestry ones, but ours was the, the most specific um, forestry one. And I can't imagine in this setting, like if, if that funding was really placed to support communities and provide alternatives to you know, timber jobs, if you like, like yeah. you as the, hey, we've got this great idea, we've got it through the testing phase, we've worked with this university, the timber is sound, um, you're now bumping into that, we've got a great idea we want to operationalise. Mm. What response did you get then? Um, again, it was the same thing. It was that same, you guys are mad, this isn't going to work, um, yeah, how do you build a machine? And we had, the, we had the drawings done up, you know, and we had 
we we'd sort of been very focused on trying to engage local advanced manufacturing. So we were using local Tasmanian companies, and I was really pushing that element. And it was at the same time that we had politically. We I think at the end of the day, the 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 project and the funding of the project got announced by three prime ministers. So we're back in that Rudd Gillard wow. Rudd era. Yeah. Uh, no, so Rudd Gillard uh, Abbott. So it was fine. It finally so the the, the Labor Party supported it through. Uh, but it was a Liberal government who ended up funding because they changed the name. It wasn't the TFPA, uh, Tasmanian Forest Agreement anymore. It was the Tasmanian Jobs and Growth Package or something in yeah. that ilk. So it ended up being a Liberal Party project, which is pretty unusual policy for them to be funding private enterprise in that way. Um, but it already had momentum. And, again, that's about those, having those champions and getting it on the right lists and just unlocking the the, the, yeah. um, the right people. But... I had a number of trips to Canberra to, to work through it with, um, uh, who was it? I think it was Dath, um, you know, one of the departments, you know, just going up there and explaining the concept. And, no, we've thought about that. We've done this. You know, this is how it's going to work. Um, and that was, they were heady days, like just knowing, you know, knowing whether or not you got the, the funding was, it was yeah, crazy. This is Adam Beaumont and you're listening to Conversations with Purpose. My guest today is Andrew Morgan and we're talking about if innovation can exist without implementation. We then got, so we got the funding. Um, There are a whole bunch of people then that we were getting criticised about getting the funding. So this view that, you know, so we got $5 million out of it. It's not a small amount of money um, from from the agreement, but that was the sort of amount we need. And so we got criticised quite a lot. There's a, there's a, and I don't know whether it's just Tasmania, but there is a strong tall poppy syndrome down here. Um, and I think, in and you know, to, to talk about innovators, I think there is a tall there is a tall poppy syndrome in innovation and perhaps in entrepreneurism as well. But oh, if you have a you know, big idea, people like to shoot it down. Yeah. Um, and so there was a whole bunch of negativity around it. Not not in the media, but just it was just noise, which can wear you down over time. Um, and how, and on that point, how did you how did you manage that? Because this I'm assuming this is over a multiple years now. Yeah, you've had this idea. Yeah, yeah. So we got you know 2012 was the idea. Uh, we hit the lake in uh, October of 2016 to, okay. to first cut a tree down. That yeah. was the first. So it was a four year period. You know, like it was a two year build um, from from idea to feasibility to getting the funding to building the actual barge and the boats and, and actually finally getting on the water. So, so that, um, that $5 million then, was that to build the infrastructure, the barge, the harvesting? Yeah. So yes. for those that have no understanding or can't visualise this, what are, we, what are we actually talking about? What did you build? So we basically, um, we our, our brief really was we want to harvest trees underwater, but we don't want anyone in the water. So we can't have divers in the water. It's dark. And it's really cold and it's very dangerous. You don't want people in in the water. They do it in um, the tropics. Um, water's warmer. It's a lot clearer. Um, they probably don't have as strong workplace health and safety uh, regulations in some of those countries as we do here in Australia. Um, so the, the basic premise was we need a platform that can harvest a tree, pick that, basically cut that tree and put it on another little barge to be taken back to land. So what we ended up with was a 145-tonne barge with three thrusters dropped down in the water 
a 45-ton excavator with a forestry head on it. Effectively, it was a, a forestry harvesting head, no different than what you'd see in a, a large pine forest. They, they, the, the, the excavator head grabs the tree. It's got a saw that comes out the bottom. It neatly cuts off the tree. So we're not pulling, we're not pulling the trees out of the, uh, out of the riverbed. We're, we're harvesting the tree. And then it, it lifts that out and slews it onto a barge and drops it onto the barge. And then we've had a tugboat which would take that back to shore. That barge, so that that harvesting barge, which we which we imaginatively called Hydrowood One. Um, <laughs> Very we're, not we're, not, we're not innovative in naming. <laughs> um, um, that that was all driven by one guy sitting in the excavator. So he's fully autonomous in terms of this one guy. We've got uh, Australian Maritime Safety um, Authority sign off to have one person operating that barge, even though the power of that barge probably dictated it needed three. So, but there was, from a safety point of view, it was safe to have one guy enclosed in a cab. He operates that whole um, whole that whole barge. And I imagine that uh, that would have been quite a act to convince people to you want to build what for what purpose yeah yeah so we engaged william adams and taylor brothers down here and i mean we we brought in some really good guys to do that bit i mean there's a whole bunch of innovation just in that getting Mm. that sorted Uh, i kind of gloss over it because i don't understand it i I had the big idea i don't i'm not a diesel mechanic i'm not an electrician so i don't understand some of the detail of that but you know, it was it was a lot of thinking around corners. I remember watching when the, the excavator went to go on the barge. The, the marine architect was sitting there and he looked green. He was he was almost sick because he didn't know. I mean, it was all theoretical to that point when he actually loads an excavator forty five yeah. tons going onto a barge. <laughs> the other the other innovation, I suppose, a powder in our brief was that we needed to be able to move this thing around. So once we'd finished one lake, we needed to be able to move it to another lake. It can't just be a dumb barge that. Um, sits one lake so it actually came in three places so you've got that 45 ton excavator can basically sorry the 45 ton excavator sits on top of a 145 ton barge those three barge pieces pull apart the barge pulls apart the the wheelhouse pulls apart we can pack that whole thing up and in theory be anywhere else in the world mm-hmm. we can take that um put it on trucks put it on ships and, and move it um so there must have been points during that process of Firstly, making an excavator with a big enough boom to reach, have the length yep. to reach down underwater. There yep. must have been points where we went, oh, my God, yeah, this is a good idea to get harvest trees from underwater, but, my God, this is technically incredibly difficult. Like, were there moments yeah. where you went, oh, God, if we didn't have external funding bodies, to, we'd have to demonstrate progress to, we'd <laughs> give up. Like, <laughs> how did you like, yeah, I mean, that was, that. you know, we had stages. I mean, they didn't just write a check for five million. It was part, you know, it was paid out over a period of time and we had absolutely had stages that we had to meet and and reporting was was onerous um but there were stages and there were look there were mistakes made along the way we ended up with a with a a a barge that we didn't really like a different barge well no it was actually a thing to lift logs out that didn't quite work so we had to modify that um the getting the weight restrictions right on how much the excavator could lift without tipping the barge because mm. obviously a tree is half the weight it is underwater than it is as you bring it out. Yep. And it's a waterlogged log. Um, and, of course, we were doing all this. Uh, we weren't doing this at the lake. We were doing this near Hobart um, on the Derwent. And so when we were doing through all the testing, there was no trees to harvest. So when we finally got all the barge done and all signed off uh, in the Derwent, we then had to pull it all apart and take it all the way to the west coast of Tasmania and build it again. And it was only then 
when we put it all back together again and went up to a tree and tested it, did we know that it actually works? And for those so, that don't know the geography, what's the distance between uh, Hobart and? It's about a uh, it's about an eight hour drive in a, on a semi trailer, and it's really curvy, you know, a horrible road to drive. And I think it was about fifteen semi trailer loads. And I still remember I, I remember working down there, and, you know, on the days, um, you know, going down there and dropping bolts into the barge, and it was it was good fun. But at the same time, it was the moment when we actually pulled harvested a tree was a bit of a Yeehaw. You know, we went and had mm. a couple of beers that night. Um, and the moment when we put a first load onto a log truck, so we actually got the logs out of the water and put them on a truck and sent them off to, to be milled was another moment. Even then, there, is a, there was a blind belief that people would pay for a re- play more for a reclaimed product than a standard harvested piece of tazoak mm. or... Yeah, that was absolute blind belief that we could build a market and build a brand that people would respond to. But this whole idea that it was a concept of a story. So, we, you know, this whole idea that we had was Hydrowood is a story. It's about provenance. Um, yes, the sustainability of Recone piece is there, but it's actually, it's, it's, it is a, it, it's important, but it tends, the story and the, the sense of place and the fact that it was harvested in a novel way tends to take over from the, the sustainability Recone place. Yeah. Um, and so we still hadn't, didn't know. So we, it wasn't, again, you, you sort of still wait. And then after you've harvested those trees, we still had to wait another six months, nine months, 12 months for that timber to dry before we could start finally putting it into the marketplace and then see how we're going in terms of what's the market response. And I'm still really only, we've really only got till now, so five years on, four years on, that we're probably moving out of the phase of proof of concept. So we've now got product on floors, on walls externally and internally, all the different species, furniture, yada, yada, to see how it performs. So even up until last year, we had people saying this this timber performs differently to terrestrial timber. Mm-hmm. Um and we've had it tested and shown that it's in the same parameters. But it's, so we've already, it's almost taken that period of time to now say, all right, we're now in commercial commercialisation phase. We yeah. can actually go to market and say we want to scale this up. Because um, the other big piece for, for learnings for us, it, I suppose with the – you would think the hardest bit for this would have been the harvesting of the tree and you know, the fact that you're harvesting upside down underwater – to us, that was because our background was forestry and forest management. That wasn't that big an issue. That was, it was yet yeah, it was still handling a log, and it was putting on a landing and taking a log truck. The biggest thing was learning about sawmilling because we knew nothing about it. So we actually had to learn about sawmilling of boards and how you dry them, uh, how they perform, how do you machine them, all the things that most sawmillers would know. But we were going from scratch. So when. That's quite a shift because you're you're at the other end of the supply chain in terms of absolutely. So when you had the original, you know, going right back to the pub when your business partner's like, oh, why don't we get these logs from out of the dam? Like that unwavering vision. Did that vision at that point include selling sawn, you know, timber reclaimed um, no. brand? What what the the what vision was, was to vision? sell logs. So the vision was that we would be simply pulling logs out. Yeah, you know, and and selling logs um, to the market, um, but we really we quickly realised that 
it was almost an inverse pyramid of demand. So the number of people who can actually take a log and do something with it is very, very limited. So you're immediately limiting your market. And I guess this is part of the, the innovation and the entrepreneurial piece of this is that we're selling, we were selling a story. So we had a really clear idea around the brand and the fact that we wanted to market this differently to the way that, that, that forest products have been marketed before. And anyone who we spoke to in the log business really didn't get it because they've been they've been in business, they've got a mature business, and and so and and even the, you know we had people in the forestry sector saying, "Oh, this won't work." So, so why? Why were they saying so? Ah, uh, but were they saying that the process of harvesting it from underwater wouldn't work, or that the process of selling it with a with a different narrative wouldn't work? I think it was probably the the. Yeah, your first point that the the the, the, mech, the mechanics wouldn't work. Mm. Um, I, I, I think there were some people who saw the narrative and go, oh, "Yeah, that's a really good idea." Um, and in fact, had people talk to us about, oh, "Can we can we just buy the brand?" Um, but yeah, so the idea of selling something that's reclaimed, um, it's reclaimed, but it doesn't have nails in it, so it's 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 similar to it's fitting into that recycled space, mm. but it's not recycled. Um, and that really has started to resonate with people, and we're seeing it um, as we're building you know, building that client base. Um, people are really l- liking the story, and I mean, the the classic vision for us was we'd sell logs, and someone else would come along and do, make something with it, and take the brand with them along the way, and we would license the brand. Yeah, that wasn't that didn't happen. So we then moved to rough sawn product. So we we kept sort of moving out to a broader market base so we started doing rough sawn um and then we ended up finished uh moving towards dressed finished all round so what you'd see at bunnings still you walk into bunnings you see a stick of taz oak that's where we've moved to um and we're trying to moving between those three different you know, we're now moving between those three different models as as required so to, the ultimate vision for us and to, for me was to have someone, and this has happened now, that we had a client come to the lake, fall in love with the story, see in theory their trees being harvested. I mean, mm. it's, it's a much more amalgam than that, but see their trees being harvested, then have a build, have a project, specify it, have their architect specify it, and then have a finished product. And we've got a number of those now. There's one in Turak, which basically is all of our material in clad Taz oak, our hydrowood oak, Internally, the table's made from it, and the client has been such a supporter all the way through. And he he will now be able to sit around that table and tell his mates, you know, why he's mm. having a glass of wine. And say, well, this table's actually come from underwater. This house internally, and that was driven by. So he's got that provenance. The the the, the story and the provenance place was driven. It was his driver initially, but then he ended up going down the. Um, Passive House and the, the Clare um, Living Building Challenge um, certification, which which demanded reclaimed timber. So the certificate, the, the environmental credentials came into the fore as well. So it really fitted his project. And then we've got the other one down here, which was um, um, uh, Hue and Pine Bath, Grand Designs, um, same thing. We had Grand Designs there. They've come along. They've, they've done the piece and now... Um, uh, tailored, uh, tailored pot at Lewisham, same thing, built out of all out of hydrowood. She tells the story all the time and everybody who sees it goes, wow, this is amazing, this has all been from underwater. So it, it, 
it, again, it's that it's the story, it's the provenance. Um, but ultimately, it drives back to the brand, which is where we wanted it to, to end up. Mm. Um, the brand's really important to, to driving the value. So it's interesting in this, you know, the entre- you know, the definition of an entrepreneur of you know someone who extracts value. Like you've managed to extract a whole lot of value. Um, but in this scenario, in quite an innovative way, like what what does it take for organisations to think in a way that's innovative and entrepreneurial? Like what, you know, based on the lessons you've learned from what sounds like quite a complicated process, you know, what would you say to organisations like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to be, you know, in our corporate plan, we're gonna, we say we're going to be innovative and we want to be entrepreneurial. Um, mm. What would you say to organisations that aspire to be that? Well, I think it's, a, I mean, it's, it's cultural. Um, you've got to culturally um, be able to promote that thinking. And I think that, thi- you know, that thinking needs to be, be open to ideas and, and encourage that thought. And that doesn't work for every organisation because some organisations you just think, no, we're here to do a job, that's it, don't mm. think outside the box. Um, if you look at an extreme example like Apple or Google, they effectively got incubators that go, you know, go and sit in that room with beanbags and come up with some crazy ideas and we'll throw them around. Yep. And then you've got, you know, marketing guys. So, so I mean, there's, yeah, there is a, you throw the word creative in there too. I mean, so, you know, is, can you, is someone who is creative also innovative? Uh, can they be entrepreneurial? They're, they're sort of in the similar veins, but they all are slightly different. Because I think you can have marketing people who are very creative and come up with great concepts, but they're not very entrepreneurial in the way that they approach it or very innovative. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, fostering innovation, fostering people to say, why not? Uh, that, that's sort of something that I sort of, you know, why can't you? Why can't mm. you do that? Why, why can't I go and do this? You're telling me I can't, but I want to. I'm going to go and try to do that. I'm going to prove that I can. So I think it's about fostering people coming to you um, and, and saying, hey, I've got an idea. And go, yeah, well, let's, let's, let's play that out and see where it goes. Don't always just say no. Mm. Can you have innovation without implementation? Can you have good ideas or unless you convert them, there is no innovation? No, I don't think you can because if you if you if you have a good idea and you don't implement it, it doesn't exist. I mean, you can have, everyone can have thought bubbles. Um, everyone can have a good idea, but if you actually don't implement it, who's to know that you had that idea? It, it, but again, be it a big idea or a small idea, yeah, it's a really interesting question because I think we've all woken up in the middle of the night or in the shower and had a oh yeah, what about that as an idea? But it's that fleeting moment, and unless you actually put it down on paper and actually do something with it, it was just an idea, mm. some innovation. I think that's my my, my view on it. Because, um, and you never know. We've probably all had hundreds of ideas, and some of them were probably absolutely real gold. But point in time, too busy, you know, self doubt. I don't want to take any risk at the moment. Um, I'll pass on that. And carry on. So yeah, does that then go back? Well, you know, you know, true innovators are those guys who grab those concepts and keep running with them, mm. um, and, and and then that's when it becomes you know, the innovation. Um, I'm sure we've we've passed on them. Well, going back to the the pub, the the genesis of the hydrowood. Do do you think that 
your business partner, you're saying he came up with the idea, but if it wasn't for your, you know, was it your entrepreneurial spirit went, yep, let's give this a crack. We'll give this a go. Like what would have happened if you weren't there? What if he converted it into practice? Uh, well, I think the way that we play, the, the way that we play off each other, probably not. So, and, and I'd say I didn't walk away from that night going, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. I walked away going, he's, he's a nutcase. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, it's really hard to think back on and get it exactly, but I think it was sort of over a period of time that I sort of, I took it up. I went, no, this is this has actually got some legs. It was a it was a period of and we do, we we play it off with each other. I was like, oh, what about this? This won't work, um, this bit won't work, yeah, it will. And gradually it became, okay, this will work. And so that was when you sort of really throw your shoulder to the grindstone, right out, we're gonna make this work, we're gonna push on this really hard. And so once you hit that belief and you've got a couple of people working at it, that's when that perspiration hits, because mm. that's when you've got to go and start pushing all the other people to believe you um, and that's where the, the real hard work I mean I think I mean I think Edison's right I think it is one percent inspiration 99 percent perspiration because just go back to the point we're talking about you can have the idea but unless someone picks up and runs with it it's it's just an idea it's not an innovation yeah completely yeah it seems like there's lots of different views of what an you know what makes an entrepreneur but at its core it's that process of turning ideas into reality and I think innovation in this sense it isn't just the idea, like it's the implementation, it's the process to turn it into an outcome to add value to the customer. In this instance, people are buying hydrowood or, you know, the, the examples of Turek or someone telling the narrative of, of why their kitchen table is important and where that timber came from. Mm. Um, it seems that if you if you want that sort of entrepreneurial culture in your organisation, it's really the practical matters of implementation that, make the difference so yeah maybe edison wasn't that far off the case and maybe those ratios are right um andrew morgan it has been a pleasure i think we could talk about this um a lot longer but i think there's many people who will find this story particularly interesting and hopefully walk away with gee it's not enough to have a good idea i've got to work out a way to put it into practice thanks so much for your time it's been a pleasure chatting thanks adam cheers man this is Adam Beaumont. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations with Purpose. Please subscribe, and if you'd like more information, please visit my website at withpurpose.consulting. Until then, bye for now.